Hi everybody, this is Niels from the editing booth. A slight cold open today to give you some context. Uh, this episode was recorded in April and it was intended to come out late April and then I fell sick. So with one thing and another, I sort of ended up missing a month. So I just wanted to say um, I'm really sorry and hopefully you will still enjoy this slightly late episode uh, the next one is just going to come out as scheduled late June. So, um, yeah, we're slightly behind on the news. There's not going to be much comment on the prehistoric planet of it all, but we hopefully will cover that in the future. So, without further interruption... You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I, for my sins, am Niels. In episode 70, Dr. Mark Whitten, beloved paleontologist, paleoartist, pterosaur researcher, and parent of chickens, will be speaking to our Mark Vincent and talking about his new book, co-authored with Eleanor Michelle, The Art and Science of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals, written by Darlene Geis and illustrated by R.F. Peterson, first published by Grosset and Dunlap in 1959, with our edition published by World Distributors in 1971. But first... Someone has to take the episode's populist theropod news, and I fear the task has fallen on you this time, Niels. Yes, unfortunately. I am on Tyrannosaur duty this month. Um, <laughs> uh, Gorgosaurus. You love Gorgosaurus. We love Gorgosaurus. It's not the best-loved Tyrannosaur, but it is the one we have the most of. Now, um, a new paper out in Taylor Francis by Jared Voris et al., Open Access, describes two very fine articulated juvenile specimens of Gorgosaurus, which add to our understanding of the growth process of these animals. Uh, they have long, shallow, narrow skulls. They lack the horns over the eyes that are pronounced in Gorgosaurus. And they are overall much more gracile compared to the adults. Compared with other specimens, we can now map out a pretty detailed growth series for this animal, which shows a uh, Remarkable parallels with that of Tyrannosaurus proper. Uh, now, Tyrannosaurids in general do seem to go through this uh, second growth spurt, right? Once they change from those nimble juveniles into those bulky, big adults, which uh, seem to occupy a different niche. Um, not only is the transformation much more pronounced in T-Rex compared to Gorgosaurus, it also seems to happen later in life with T-Rex, so when the animal is about 15 years old. Um, should you wonder, yes, this is in fact another nail in the coffin of Nanotyrannus because all those supposed Nanotyrannus skulls really seem to fit in very well into that growth series because this is quite obviously a juvenile Tyrannosaur. Right. Uh, once again, it's in Taylor Francis. Uh, as ever, the link will be in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you, Niels. I, I do have to say, though, as much as I uh, like to make fun of theropods, I, uh, the the Gorgosaurus specimen in question really is so beautifully preserved. It's uh, 
It's, it's remarkable. Yes. I used to check that out. I'm not sure I've actually seen that yet. They <laughs> mention it. I, I saw the paper in passing. I'm not sure I've actually seen the photos or anything yet. Let's go and have a look. This is quite, this is quite astonishing, Mark. This is so unlike you. I can't believe no, it. No, I know. I've been uh, lax recently. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely innocent. But uh, on that note, though, Mark, uh, more theropods still from you, if perhaps the less typical kind. Yes, because you might have really complete, articulate, beautiful specimens, but I've got a partial hand here. Well, <clears throat> this is actually... Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. that's astonishing. <laughs> and possibly a bit of a vertebra. Um, but, but don't underestimate the significance of this partial hand, and in particular, the claws, because this is... Deep breaths, please. New theories are... <laughs> I always do this. Deep breaths, please. This is... Do I, uh, do I, do I give a little drum roll here? <laughs> yes. Um, this is... New Therizinosaur dinosaur from the marine... Uh, Osushani Formation, I probably said that wrong, Upper Cretaceous Japan provides insight for function and evolution of Therizinosaur claws um, by Kobayashi et al. and published in Nature Scientific Reports very recently, as it happens. Um, and here the authors are looking at, looking again at a partial theropod hand first described in 2008 by Murakami et al. Um, they so it's not tell- even a new one? It's not even a new specimen as such, but it's newly re-described, basically. Well, it's newly described properly. They're saying that um, back in 2008, the authors could tell it belonged to a Maniraptorin and probably a Therizinosaur. They couldn't be absolutely sure simply because, um, to quote the paper, of the limited comparative information in the literature at the time. But now paleontology advances so rapidly that there's loads of, there are loads of Therizinosaur ungles, claws in the literature. <laughs> so uh, now they're able to compare it. Um and they can firmly establish it's a indeed a partial man that's belonging to a therizinosaur, um, which is named, para- <laughs> which is named Paralitherizinosaurus japonicus. Um, pa- Paralitherizinosaurus. I can't. This is like it's a bit of a tongue twister. Paralitherizinosaurus japonicus. Paralitherizinosaurus. Um, Paralitherizinosaurus. It looks. If you keep hey, saying you it, it, it gets easier. Paralitherizinosaurus, yeah. Um, which looks a lot more complicated. Paralitherizinosaurus. I still have trouble with the th- the sound. Yeah. Um, but with, basically it comes from paralos, meaning near the sea, and you know the rest of it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's like therizinosaur near the sea. And actually it's the only the second therizinosaur ever found in a marine deposit. Um, and it's also the youngest therizinosaur specimen known from japan so far some other fragmentary bits and pieces have been found but they're older this is from the campanian so um something like 70 80 million years ago so it's actually rather young um and also in spite of merely being a partial hand um it it as the authors put it preserves important elements in light and our understanding of its finer scale taxonomic identification as well as providing insights into morphological function so in other words just from this hand they can tell its taxonomic affinities and how the claws may have functioned in life. So they established. Okay, that's um, actually really interesting, right? Because yeah, exactly. Just from they that have these great big claws, and there's it's always kind of controversial what they're doing with them. Exactly, and they're able to compare with older therizinosaurs, um, so the, which they tend to find are more generalized, and obviously the later ones, um, like Therizinosaurus itself, and they noted adaptation, which is also found in Therizinosaurus. That would have meant the ungles um, did not function with a strong force, but uh, was stiffer, acting like a rake for hook and pull for a hook and pull function to bring vegetation to the head. Um, 
yeah and i mean obviously this is greatly simplifying it because it's a huge in-depth look at the uh the specimen concerned obviously and the comparisons are made there's also a uh, phylogenetic we're not analysis. here to be technical we're here to be as generalized as possible <laughs> there's also oh, a phylogenetic yeah. analysis in there um looking at all the therizinosaurs um so yeah there's a lot more to this paper than you might initially suspect but basically it is amazing what the authors are able to glean from such limited well apparently limited material of course as they know it is you know, a really crucial part that happens to have been preserved, and that gives them actually a surprising amount they can they can go on. Basically, this animal, uh, Paralitherizinosaurus, um, was a more derived therizinosaur, so more comparable to Therizinosaurus itself. Although it did share some features with the um, older ones, so I guess you could sort of say almost right, like an intermediate, almost. Am I right in saying that? Uh, the more complete therizinosaurs that we have are the older ones, like Falcarius and um, Bipiosaurus. Yeah, I think so. Um, do you can't remember how complete uh, Nothronychus is. Nothronychus is a bit more uh, derived, isn't it? But I think we have. I think we have about half of that. Yeah, that one's fairly well known, isn't it? But yeah, you're right. I think it's mainly the old. I mean, Therizinosaurus itself isn't especially well known. I don't think. Um, no, I don't think it is. And they think they might have a bit of a vertebra as well, possibly, although it's kind of a, hard to tell where exactly it comes from in the body. They believe it's associated with the hand because it shows um, pneumaticity that would be typical of a therizinosaur that you would expect to see in a therizinosaur or indeed a maniraptor in general. So they believe it is associated, but it's, uh, yeah, where exactly it came from. They suspect the neck, but they're not sure. So, yeah. Uh and yeah, you can read the paper if you want, if you want lots and lots of um, very technical descriptions of things, of claws, <laughs> because it's in scientific reports. So you can go and download it. That's what we're all here for. Open Fantastic. access. We're all about open access. If your paper isn't open access, then it stands a 75% uh, lower chance of being included in our roundup. So if you want to make your papers open access, or well, they won't yep. be on the, the most listened to paleo podcast on the internet, that might be a lie. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Make the open access though. You want to read them? Yep. Yes, please. Yeah. The only thing I'm not super psyched about is the name. I mean, oh. is it still a thing that we name dinosaurs after other more well-known dinosaurs? Yes. <laughs> like you have Sorolophus, then you have Prosorolophus, then you have right. Parasaurolophus. That would seem to be the case. Then you have Ceratosaurus, then you have Proceratosaurus, which, whoops, turns out not to be a Ceratosaur at all. You set yourself up for failure that way, right? Potentially, although in this case, it's pretty solidly a therizinosaur. So at least there's that. Um, okay, that's fair. You're not gonna. That. You're probably not gonna mistake a therizinosaur for anything else. And unlike therizinosaurus itself, the um, specific name is merely Japonicus. Um, they're not trying to make any comments on its anatomy or anything like that from the. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for the specific name it's just it's from japan very wise yes very it's, wise it certainly is wonderful thank you mark and finally a remarkable new study uh reinforces the idea that pterosaurs may have had feathers after all uh with implications for their evolutionary origins the hair-like integument of pterosaurs, formerly called pycnofibers, has so far been regarded as distinct enough from feathers to warrant the distinction. But this new paper 
Pterosaur melanosomes support signaling functions for early feathers by Cincotta et al. further reinforces a 2018 suggestion that the structures are indeed feathers. This study on an exquisitely preserved specimen of Tupendactylus imperator finds two types of feathers along the back of the crest, monofilaments and branched feathers like that of modern birds. The melanosomes, the the microscopic structures within feathers and skin which form the pigment melanin, differ between the two feather types and are equally consonant with those found in birds and in non-avian dinosaurs. They suggest that this Dupendactylus may have had darker hair-like feathers and lighter branched ones. The key takeaways here are that colourful feathers used in social signalling were as much present in pterosaurs as in non-avian dinosaurs and birds, and that pterosaur feathers either evolved independently or that the evolution of feathers go all the way back to the common ave metatarsalian ancestors of all pterosaurs and dinosaurs back in the early Triassic, more than 243 million years ago. And if this were the case, it wasn't long before things like camouflage and communication followed through from thermoregulation in their evolution. These claims are not without controversy, of course, but the paper's co-author, Maria McNamara of University College Cork, maintains that, for me, if something has the same structure as a feather, contains melanosomes and shows chemical signatures for keratin, these are all defining characteristics of feathers. There is no need to invent a new name for it. The paper is published... (laughs) quacks like a dog feather. Exactly, yes. The paper is published by Nature and is open access. And in a happy coda to this study, the Tupendactylus specimen in question, whose acquisition and erstwhile possession in private hands are something of a mystery, has now been safely repatriated to Brazil. It arrived at the Earth Sciences Museum in Rio de Janeiro in February this year, where it is now contentedly ensconced. Fantastic. Contentedly I mean, ensconced. we really... <laughs> contentedly ensconced. <laughs> Very good. I mean, we really kind of buried the lead by saving that one for last. I'm pretty convinced that that's that was our biggest news story this month. Yeah, it's pretty bigger than a hand. <laughs> yeah, sorry, okay. sorry, authors Granted. of the um, that paper. I've just insulted <laughs> Kobayashi Eto. I'm sorry, Kobayashi Eto. I mean, yeah, theropods are all well and good, but uh, let's be honest. This is pretty big news. I yeah. mean, yeah, pterosaurs having actual proper feathers, yeah. that's a big thing. But did pterosaurs evolve? Pterosaurs evolve them independently or was it, we need to find now is some holy grail proto archosaur covered in feathers and right. be like Aha. Ex- exactly <laughs> yes perhaps it's only a matter of time but seriously though that's pretty amazing and it, i'm it definitely going to check out that paper yes let us get to our vintage dinosaur art vintage dinosaur art Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals by Darlene Geis and illustrated by Russell Francis Peterson. Um, This edition that we're talking about is from 1971, Mark, but I believe the original dates back to 1959. Yep, it certainly does. Yeah, first edition 1959, apparently, and this one from 1971. Doesn't look like that much would have changed in the interim. but No, but a true vintage title in this case. Yep, proper oldie. None of your 1980s filler stuff with loads of civic knockoffs or anything like that. This is proper proper old school. Proper old school 1950s night knockoffs. Yep, night knockoffs, maybe a bit of beer. Mostly night, actually, in here. Um, although it's, they're, 
aren't that many obvious knockoffs. I mean, the obvious ones are very obvious, but there's some yeah. more original ones in here too. Yeah, it's pretty good, actually. Um, for example, on the cover, we have Allosaurus, which also pops up again inside. And I struggled to think of a night piece that that references particularly. It has a unique look all its own. It looks, if anything, like certain classic Iguanodon representations rather than Allosaurus. It does a bit. It the uh, crenulations yeah. are very unusual down the back, especially for that time. And although it looks like Iguanodon's sort of evil twin uh, in these illustrations, <laughs> especially with those yeah, that's that's right. distinctly three-toed feet as well, the crenulations, the, po- the pose. But then, of course, it has a big mouth full of sharp teeth and evil glowing red eyes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, nice and muscular too. Yeah, especially the hind limbs. Um, well, actually, just in general. But, well, particularly the hind limbs I always draw attention to because, of course, we're talking about night and in night's reconstructions, the hind limbs are inevitably under-muscled because they were fitting in with that lizardy idea and just ignoring all the bones. But in this case, yes, they are proper muscly muscle legs. So he's couched 5K, this guy, definitely. And then some. <laughs> Swole. Yeah. Um, am I the only one who's seeing that it has sort of a trout tail? Uh, it does look quite <laughs> compressed, yes. doesn't it? And smooth. It certainly does. Well, no, but the coloration. No, but the colors. Exactly. It looks exactly like it's a, a trout. trout. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the colors and the spots. Yeah, all right. It does look this a bit is so when, fishy. So, Niels, this is when you must include Schubert's uh, Trout, Die Forelle, uh, as a bit of background music while we're talking about this. All right, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah which contrasts with t-rex which is definitely uh with apologies for using t-rex of course there sorry greg um so tyrannosaurus is definitely a night knockoff um specifically it's one of his earliest reconstructions of t-rex i mean the one that's a full page reconstruction it's one of night's earliest t-rexes where he gave it yeah, a rather it's vague, highly recognizable yeah rather vague lizardy head three fingers um weird Feet with the uh, well, the reversed hallux, basically. It's got the reversed hallux going on. So, yeah, the reversed um, uh, duke law, yeah. Yeah, which I suppose makes it ultra stable on its feet. <laughs> Maybe the idea is it's so heavy. And uh, again, showing its 19 influences, the um, it's very under muscle when compared with the Allosaurus, I guess because it's pretty much a straight copy of the knight. <laughs> but uh, there is another T-Rex that appears in an illustration fighting against Triceratops, which looks awkward, I must say, to say the least. Very different. It's, it's yeah, yeah, different and awkward. It's not just that the T Rex looks different. Um, stylistically, this illustration is very odd. It looks quite out of place among all the others. Yeah, it looks as though it was done by a different artist altogether. Yeah, because even even some of the other black and white um, line illustrations in this book don't look quite like this one. So it's uh, it's odd in in very many ways. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of odd, the T Rex. One of the strange things about it is that it looks to be plantigrade. <laughs> Sort of, uh, <laughs> it really looks like a man in a suit. That one, especially when compared with the night one, when compared Absolutely. with the Allosaurus, um, suddenly the anatomy has gone out the window a bit. But I want this is a sort of a last minute edition approaching deadline. It's like we need T Rex flying Triceratops. Oh, god, <laughs> just submit it to the publisher. That'll do. Extremely, extremely lizard like toes on that T Rex as well. Yeah, very, very strange. Um, the Triceratops is somewhat night like, but not particularly so i don't know it's, it's a bit lumpy but it's okay it's got a bit of a it's got a bit of a buffalo rhino figure going on yeah that's inevitable isn't it <laughs> and but, but yes it does the style i mean a lot of the illustrations in here have this um obviously 
painterly style with broad brushstrokes, um, not particularly it's hyper details. Beautiful. Yes, not trying necessarily to be realistic, but effective. Also effective with a sparing number of brushstrokes, with, with minimal brushstrokes. So things like the um, the Diplodocus, which is on page 44. I might throw you a bit now while you look through all the <laughs> scans and photos I've sent. But um, that's a good example of, I mean, you simply would not see anything like that in a popular dinosaur book. I don't think even in the 1970s, really. This um, the styles went completely out of fashion. Very, as I said, very minimal. Yes, absolutely. Broad areas, flat areas of color, and it's um, and yeah, remarkable. Whenever you see um, paleo art that is this old, which isn't night, right? So a book like this, or something uh, by say Hilary Stebbing, uh, which I've reviewed, which is from around the same time. Um, it seems to be more common to have more stylized, less realistic uh, art like this rather than the hyper-realism that Knights popularized and that was the ball that they really ran with uh, during yes. the early di- dinosaur renaissance. Uh, yeah. Yes. I-, I suppose because, as I think I said before, following the dinosaur renaissance, people wanted to show that they were really paying attention to the anatomy and they were really up to date. So it was really important that they make everything look really detailed and realistic. We're taking this seriously, you know, and they ditched the old, more stylized approaches. Um, whereas this is before that era. So although clearly there's um, the artists using a decent amount of reference material, the artist being uh, Russell Peterson, did we, did we say he was? Uh, R.F. Peterson. We did. We, yeah. yeah, we did. He was... Um, he sadly died back in 2013, RIP. But uh, yeah, this, so Russell Peterson. Um, I've got my point now. But his approach is a lot more stylistic, and um, he didn't feel the need necessarily to. Um, he, he wasn't following that dinosaur renaissance framework of having to make everything, having, having to show his working all over the place, having to make everything as real looking mm. as he could, as he possibly could. It's detailed just to show you that I'm taking this seriously. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah. I'm really re- re- reconstructing these animals from a series. It was, it was more uh, freedom, I felt, I think, to, to take this more painterly approach to things. But there's similar colours, in fact. There's the Stegosaurus standing on its own, which is literally the shape of an egg. And I really the like which that is... Stegosaurus. Yeah. yeah, and the Dimetrodon, curiously <laughs> it's, uh... enough. I really, really, yeah, I really love those two. Um, I, I must say, though, that the, the egg shape of the Stegosaurus might be owing more to, to uh, foreshortening than, uh, than is actually intended to be. Well, um, so, yeah. If you look at some very old, especially European paleo art of Stegosaurus, it did really have that almost bell curve shape to it. Um, I refer you to the works of uh, Heinrich Harder and... Um, the, uh, the the horrible Othenio Abel, um, <laughs> their their Stegosaurus uh, looks a bit more like this. So so I think this Stegosaurus is owing more to their work than to someone like Knights who already made his Stegosaurus look more recognisable to us. Yeah, we put that down to to foreshortening, I suppose. Um, but there's a Meechton, by the way, is another great one, and that mm. looks very sort of serpentine. I've yeah, really running with that lizard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Reptilian aspect. Yeah. But but curiously, in terms of style, these two illustrations for, for all whatever flaws they may have, the, the ones of uh, Stegosaurus and Dimetrodon, these are my two favorites, actually, because this is where the, the artist's style really shines 
in my eyes anyway. I mean, it's full of personality. It's there. There is a sort of um, sort of almost cartoony playfulness there, which mm, I really exactly. appreciate. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, completely. I really like yeah. the composition on the Dimitridon piece in particular as well. The fact that you've got um, the sinewy shape curving down through the yes. through the scene of the Dimitridon, and then in the background you have another one just standing there, just to give you an idea of what it looks like in a Absolutely. straightforward yeah. side view. So you have the best That's of both right. worlds. You have this sort of identity parade view in the background to give you an idea of that, and then you have this interesting um, curving form in the foreground coming down towards uh, the front of the scene where it's chasing exactly. this little amphibian thingy. <laughs> It's yeah, sure. I completely agree, agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's one of my favorites in the book. Yeah, as you say, lots of personality in that. Oh, there's, there's a lone Triceratops as well, by the way. Um, and it's opposite um, Protoceratops, which looks like it's broken out in warts. I don't know. It's just sort of uh, it's covered on these black speckles. It's a very interesting look for Protoceratops. Yeah. Not one you see very often. Um, although it is sort of blue, um, but I think we can say this isn't a John Civic knockoff. I think it's safe to say. No. This rather predates... It's not a night knockoff either. No, it rather predates John Civic anyway. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a pretty decent Triceratops for today. It is, yeah, it's a good season enough Triceratops, for sure. It's, it's nowhere near as bizarre yeah. looking as, some, as, say, the Stegosaurus is to me. It looks like a pretty straightforward illustration of a Triceratops. It's got quite a nice head. Um, I like the skin patterning in particular, the large um, sort of osteoderms or nodules in the skin look very nice. And on the... Um, on the face, on the jugal. That's a nice little touch. Oh, the fighting sea dragons are a great one. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that's Anastasaurus. another one that owes a lot to knight, right? Very much, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But that's just another classic scene that um, you don't really see anymore. I mean, for obvious reasons, you don't see it like this because now we've established that Anastasaurus almost certainly couldn't do that um, <laughs> sort of nessy thing. But uh, it's, it's almost like um, like some sort of here be dragons drawing on an ancient map <laughs> or something. Yes, it is. Uh, as I say, I, I mean, very much tonight, but it's such a great classic paliwart trope that you don't see anymore. I absolutely love it. It's just these these monsters um, having at it. It's reminiscent of the early Victorian etchings, isn't it, of um, various. Oh, yeah. D- uh, ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs attacking one another while bat winged pterosaurs fly overhead. It's great stuff. Um, nice splashing water as well. Again, with quite minimal brush strokes to create that effect, which is rather nice. My other real favorite is, is um, it's not of a dinosaur, but it's of the, the herd of Eohippus. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. uh, I can't, can't tell if that's my most favorite or not, but, but I really, really am very fond of this piece. Um, again, the, the character... Of of the artist and of uh, this this style uh, really shines in this one and of course it's a beautiful composition and uh, yeah and uh, and it's got early horses in it what what's there not to like come on <laughs> yeah I, I agree the artist uh, the artist's character really shines through in this one perhaps more than any other um, mm. and it's, it's just beautiful to look at you could you could hang it up on your wall it's uh, it really it's so is. exactly it's really, yeah it's just beautiful beautiful painting the trachodon of course really exaggerated duck snout on this one right. Oh yes, completely. On a very humanoid head, otherwise, it's oh, it's what? it's so sad. I, I'm I'm saying this again, but the hadrosaurs of this period are so typical in their in their in the lack of care on the part of the artists, and they always look so miserable in one degree or another. It's uh, uh, 
Don't yeah. you dirty. Oh yeah, completely. Quite humanoid arms. Um, the proportions yeah, are quite somewhat humanoid legs as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, again, it's kind of plant grade again. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a... yeah. Oh dear, poor hadrosaurs. They've been let down. Always calling them duck bills was a mistake. It doesn't remark oh, like oh, just a duck's beak. Completely. Yeah, <laughs> a giant, a giant duck's beak. Just uh, yes, with eyes. Calling them duck bills was a mistake. I, oh, I, I, completely. I stand by it. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. I think, on on the whole, the, the this the style of this artist, and and this isn't a, a particularly pertinent um, observation because it's not is not owing to any direct influences between them because I doubt there were, um, and more to the the sort of um, the stylistic approaches of the interwar and mid century period. But my whole impression at looking at, um, at the illustrations for this book is that they remind me somehow. Of the of the illustrations of uh, Ludwig Bemelmans, um, the Austrian American author and illustrator, and creator of the Madeleine books. Do you remember those? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> in an old house in Paris that was covered with vines, lived twelve little girls in two straight lines. In two straight lines, they broke their bread, and brushed their teeth, and went to bed. These are the, the famous opening lines to the first Madeleine uh, book. And, and the, the sort of motif gets carried through in, in all the other sequels. Um, but anyway, that's, that's not important. Um, but my point is that they, uh, they reminded me somehow, um, the, especially the freshness of the, the impasto use of the paint and the, the almost calligraphic and spirited use of... Uh, of some of the line work, and 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 what we were saying earlier about how if we allowed the artist to just really be expressive, that's when the illustrations come alive much more than when he's trying to be a little bit half-heartedly realistic. Um, but all yeah. of this is just to say that um, it made me want to see actually a, a dinosaur book done in a style similar to that of Ludwig Bemelmans. Um, I would really love to see that, but yeah, I think I think that the general point and the, the take home from from this one, I think, is well exactly what you said. Um, the art turns out best when the artist is allowed to be themselves rather than aping somebody else, and that I think is very much a universal thing and something uh, to keep in mind for all the uh, paleo artists of now. Exactly. Also something that I think we, we keep returning to, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't have to be realistic. Just be yourself. You don't have to conform with a particular style. You can push things in, certain, you know, in different directions, experiment a bit stylistically. Yeah, we've been a bit hobbled by, as I said, this post-dinosaur renaissance approach to being... to, to, to taking the anatomy very seriously, which is, which is fair enough, but it, I don't think it should come necessarily at the cost of stylistic experimentation or expression. Um, we need to find a way to combine the two somehow, to combine the anatomical yeah. rigor and the stylistic. Um, I mean, people, to be fair, people have started doing this now. It is a hard one because, because how do you push the, the style? You know, how do you experiment with the style without making the dinosaurs all warped and crazy? And then you've thrown the uh, natural history aspect out the window. I can think of about 10 contemporary artists who do that quite I think successfully, so. including... Yeah including one of whom I'm talking to. So, uh, I mean... <laughs> it's, it's not easy. There are people who do it successfully. 
as I said, it's just um, just that I can understand why a lot of artists do feel um, obliged to follow this realistic approach. Yes, um, because oh, yes. because of the subject matter. So yeah, it can be done, but um, I think we need to have, give artists more freedom to to do so, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, publishers. Like that. So here we have Mark Whitten, author, artist, paleontologist, and he has, along with his co-author, Eleanor Mitchell, uh, no, sorry, Michelle, recently written a book on the Crystal Palace Geological Court, which of course includes the famous dinosaurs, uh, their history, their inspirations, the story behind their reconstruction, and their legacy, and their conservation and future. So yeah, I suppose the most unique part of this book is the way that you deconstruct uh the various well the various reconstructions the and look at them as true pieces of paleo art and not just as kitsch because as you say in the book and it it started in 19th century in fact they have often been viewed as being merely outdated kitschy silly things occupying space in a park in london whereas actually what the book does in great detail in you know, more than any book has done before is to look at them as serious pieces of paleo art. I just wondering what your thoughts were there. I mean, how was it going back and really investigating these as serious paleo art in the way that you would look at a more modern piece by, well, you know, yourself or Craig Paul or Mark Hallett or whoever and look at their inspirations. Did you think it was important to address that aspect of their legacy to really make it clear that these aren't just pieces of kish? These aren't just uh, kish, kitsch. They are just kitschy, um, you know, monstrous curiosities and that they really have a place in the great paleo art pantheon. Yes. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head is the, these, these were, you know, for, for, no one can see what I'm doing because you know it's a podcast. But I'm doing the old air quotes. These are serious bits of paleo art. They're, they're not just um, they're, they're, they weren't just things that were thrown together. Um, we know that the, the sculptor Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins he was going to visit specimens. He was going to look at um, you know the fossils himself. He was really making the best go of it that he could. Um, and I think what's happened over time is that the People have emphasized everything that's wrong about them and they've not looked at what's right about them. Um, so we, we draw the comparison, for instance, that although because uh, the dinosaurs are obviously the best known components, the Iguanodon, the Haliosaurus and the Megalosaurus, um, and uh, people often talk about them and about how just oh, look, look at the, the quadrupedal Megalosaurus and look at the, the, the nose horn on Iguanodon and they sort of they point out these things. But in the book, we say, well, although these guys were maybe far off the reality of what those specific animals were like. They're actually really on a very good track for knowing what dinosaurs were like. You think about how many heavyset quadrupedal dinosaurs there were. You've got sauropods, you've got horned dinosaurs, you've got the thyreophorans, uh, so you're, you know, your ankylosaurs and your stegosaurs. Um, that, th- those models aren't really far off that. They, you know, and, th- and they managed to deduce that dinosaurian condition at least some of the dinosaur condition from really not that many bones uh one thing that um i spent quite a lot of time doing for the book was trying to track down what fossils hawkins was using as his reference specimens for different sculptures and um of course for dinosaurs that's actually quite easy to ascertain because 
you know, I, I was going to say, as it was in the 19th century, as it still is now, dinosaurs are still rare enough in Britain that any scrap of bone gets a thorough paper, gets a thorough description, because with that, you know, we, we just don't get that many um, compared to some parts of the world, you know, where they've got dinosaurs that are so common that they don't even bother collecting them. You know, yeah. in Britain, it's like every everything's important. Yeah, I mean, um, there's, 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 um, Wheels and Maneraptoran, right? Um, it's just a little dig at Darren Nation. Sure. Yeah, like a silly little yeah, scrap yeah, of bone. Yeah. I wanted a whole paper. I mean, what, what, is, what, is, what does he know about it? Does it Nation, he knows nothing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as, as a prime example, you know, that that, that being a, a good example. So the like the, the little Wheeled and Maneraptoran is sort of, you know, just a, a tiny, you know, tiny vertebra. And that gets a full description uh, because it's something that we don't really have uh represented by anything else so you know so it's important for us to to document our dinosaur finds in quite a lot of detail and of course people were doing that particularly when dinosaurs were first discovered where anything new potentially was some you know was a game changer so it's quite easy to actually go back into the literature and say well this is what was published in that year and that that year and that year and so you get to you look at everything that's published basically before 1852 when they started work on the project and you can say this is probably more or less what they were working with uh and, and there's some interesting stories in that you know you can look at um what bones went into the different sculptures and you can start going oh they did that because of that um so things like the um the, the Heliosaurus has got a bit of a smile on its face, and we think that's probably because it's using uh, a chunk of, of stegosaur jaw, um, Regnosaurus, which has got a little bit of a curve to it. And that's kind of interesting to, to like look at that and go, oh, maybe that's actually quite closely referenced from that specimen. Um, and so, yeah, you, you find all these little, little details that, that might have been overlooked. Uh, so, yeah, that was actually a really fun thing to do, to actually you know have an excuse to... to we were sort of thinking about it as almost like reverse engineering them because we don't have their notes. We don't have, we don't have like Hawkins notebooks. I feel like the Holy Grail of this is that it might, might, they might be destroyed for all we know, you know, maybe nothing exists, but if someone does find that one day, you know, the notebook where Hawkins was designing these things in, that's uh, that's going to be a significant find. We don't have it yet. And so the only thing we can do is look at the sculptures as they are now, look at old photographs, etc., and uh, And then try and calculate sort of, well, how do you get from these scientific papers to those sculptures? What's the bit in between like? Obviously, a lot of credit is given to what has been given in the past to Richard Owen and his anatomical comparative anatomy genius. Um, conversely, of course, he's also been regarded as kind of a total evil bastard. Um, in this book, you point out that, in fact, his influence may well have been overstated in that he actually appears to have been rather, shall we say, hands-off on the whole thing. And it's quite probable that Hawkins didn't get enough credit for the reconstructions. Would you say that's an accurate summation of affairs, that really Owen sort of swooped in, took a lot of the credit for things, but it was Hawkins who was leading the way, in, in well, with this attention to detail? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the real... You know, the real work on Owen's role in Crystal Palace is something that we're sort of standing on the shoulders of others for. So there's um, there's some great books on um, Owen's anatomical correlation, this idea that the, the famous story of Owen being handed the bone of a mower and, and you know, just like the, the fragment of a leg bone and reconstructing the whole thing. That's the idea of anatomical, anatomical correlation, where you take, you know, one bit of an animal and then from that you can deduce what the whole thing looked like. Um so Owen gets brought in for that reason, because he's meant to be very good at that. He is, of course, 
option two. He's he's the second choice consultant. They want to Gideon Mantel first. Um, uh, but yeah, he, uh, Mantel couldn't make it because of various reasons, including the fact he was extremely ill, and he, he wouldn't have outlived the um, he wouldn't have lived through the the construction process anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, so so people have done lots of work on on Owen's role in in this. So people like Gowen Dawson with anatomical cor- correlation, uh, Jim Secord, uh, a historian at Cambridge, he's done lots of work on Owen's involvement with the Crystal Palace, and they're really the people who. You know, through looking at archival letters and things, found out that Owen basically did nothing, and it's it's something that you know, it's a, and, and that's not really much of an exaggeration either. There are letters from Hawkins that say Owen has done like basically nothing for this project. You know that, that you can in this correspondence you can you can you know really see the frustration being felt by not only Hawkins but also the the Crystal Palace Company, which is the the big corporation putting the whole Crystal Palace site together. Um, they're they're really trying to get Owen in, involved. They're saying, you know, please come down to the site, please come and have a look at this stuff. And Owen just isn't interested. Um, so yeah, we we really pick up on that. And what we've what we've done, I think, what our, our main contribution to that is to by looking at the sculptures in so much detail and comparing them with what Owen was saying in his papers at the same time. So you've got Hawkins producing his stuff in the early eighteen fifties. You've got Owen, obviously being a prolific author on all sorts of things, but including many of the species at Crystal Palace. Um, and yeah, Owen knows a lot of stuff that Hawkins doesn't. And that's not a slight at Hawkins. This is, you know, kind of saying, well, why why aren't you giving the benefit of your expertise? You know, why aren't you telling Hawkins what Teleosaurus scutes look like? And why aren't you telling Hawkins that the iguanodon horn should be a claw somewhere on the on the animal instead of putting it on the nose? Um, yeah, so so there is quite a lot of evidence that Owen, you know, his role has definitely been overstated. And of course, yeah, that then does come back to, well, if Owen wasn't telling Hawkins what to do, who was? There isn't really anyone else that we're aware of that could have been contributing that sort of intellectual component. So it probably is Hawkins himself who's coming up with all this. And we know there's a good good reason, you know, good good basis for this. Hawkins is a, a, a fine anatomist and he's a, a skilled uh, artist of, of living animals. So he's probably perfectly capable of making all the deductions that we see at Crystal Palace. Right. Um, and yeah, so it really puts him in a much, you know, in a, in a much more prominent role. Uh, but as you say, Owen comes in and he's happy to take the credit when, when the, when the sculptures are popular, at least he's happy to take the credit. Yeah. Which, uh, sounds like something he did quite a bit. <laughs> but, yeah. Um... I, I, I've, I've tried not to, I don't, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not a historian of, of Owen. I don't know his life in that much detail. So I, I don't really want to make a call on whether he's sort of the, you know, the, the, the evil overlord, the sort of evil warlock <laughs> of 19th century paleontology, or if he's sort of this slightly misunderstood genius. Um, I, what, what little I know of him, you know, you know reading around him in the project, is he, he's somewhere between those two. He's definitely, you know, he's definitely a man of uh, exceptional skill and insight when it comes to understanding fossil animals. But you know, even just within the limited scope of the the, the, the work he was publishing around the Crystal Palace um, species, he does a lot of like claim. He does a lot of claim jumping. Um, the whole the whole story of him and the mower is a bit of a claim jump. Over time, he really starts to write out um, the original chap who gave gave him the the mower specimen, who had already figured out it would belong to a bird. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but yeah, Owen did that sort of thing quite a lot. Mm. <laughs> I mean. Yes, that's the thing that was striking to me about this, the fact that uh, this book really finally gives Hawkins 
his due. And as you say, who was advising him? Well, no one really. It does tie in with what I've said a lot in the past, both on the blog and on this podcast and elsewhere, that um, if somebody is a very good wildlife artist, then they're reconstructed as prehistoric animals, regardless of the whether or not they have good paleontologists advising them, or indeed anybody in this case. Um, they do end up looking convincing just because of their grasp on anatomy. And it's clear that Hawkins did have a very good grasp on basic anatomy, and he was able to reconstruct these animals in a way that made sense in their own terms. Uh, because as you say, we can look at them now, and indeed even in the 19th century, later in the 19th century, people were looking at them and saying, well, these, these are silly, and we've moved on from this now. You had the harsh comments from Marsh that you mentioned in the book. Um, actually, speaking of Marsh, sorry, go off on tangent here, but... One thing that really struck me was him saying that, basically saying that these could be taken to be the authoritative reconstructions, and this is how people could, you know, this could be that that they could prove to be the definitive versions of these animals that people couldn't get out of their heads even as the science advanced, and that seems so prophetic for paleo art in general in the future. I mean, you do mention in the book Jurassic Park, of course, and how that became. You know, those became the dinosaurs in the public's mind and it's exactly the same principle which is really fascinating to me the fact that even at the start even at crystal palace people already think people like marsh are already thinking this i mean marsh is arguably too harsh harsh marsh um <laughs> on the on the crystal palace sculptures but at the same time he's kind of right in that respect yeah it totally is and you know it, 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 as you say it's actually difficult to flaw to, to to fault his his concern um, about making reconstructions of extinct animals that you basically don't have a clue what they look like. Um, and it's obviously something that is still relevant today when we have, you know, animals, which is just, uh, uh, highly unusual. Obviously, our knowledge of extinct animals is far more advanced than it was in the mid-1800s, but we still have animals which are unusual. Um, I'm thinking particularly of things like Spinosaurus, and yet we reconstruct them. And then, uh, then a little bit, you know, a couple of years later, you're going, Oh no! Wait, no, no. Now it looks like this, and then a couple of years later, it's no, no. Now it looks like this, and it's it's the same. You know, if if you want to if if you want to view it in this way, it's the same problem. The other way to look at it is that where you're you're showing the evolution of the science, but yeah, you do have this thing of well, you know, your lay audiences are probably going to latch onto something, uh, and at some point, there's going to be sort of a, a a defining look for that animal for a generation. Jurassic Park is probably the defining look for dinosaurs for you know the last 20 30 years. Uh so we've got our own version of of you know what Marsh was saying he what what he feared would feared would happen in the uh, in the 1850s. Um but yeah the the it's it's still a conversation we're having today. Um and, and actually you, you could say all the all the criticism of the of the um geological court was was quite legitimate. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, you know, the scientists at the time were were, were unhappy with it. Um, there, there was some in, initial praise, but then very quickly, most people just didn't like it. They, they felt it was too speculative and they were pushing things too far. Um, but the, but you, this was a period in the history of paleo art where some people were of the opinion that if you did anything more than a, a basic outline of what you thought an extinct animal looked like, that you were going too far. You know, even if you put some, some fur or something on a fossil mammal, it's like, nope. That's too much. Dial it back. You know, this is like the, the complete, this is the anti all yesterday's period of, uh, of paleo art. So yeah, if you, you then do that and you, you, you got, you've got that kind of view and then you've got someone like Hawkins and he's creating these giant, you know, 
giant iguanodon and giant megalosaurus and things from from very little fossil material of course that wasn't going to go down well with that contingent and of course it's remarkable obviously <laughs> precious little survives now of the original crystal palace complex estate as i said you have some foundations and you have some some steps and some a few statues that are left over apart from the geological core which is still there um and it's absolutely incredible how much of that is still original of course there's a lot that's been reconstructed and repaired and patched up and a few bits here and there have been replaced with fiberglass you know prosthesis but it's uh, prosthetics but it's still amazing how original it is and one question that neil's in particular had was how you think it would be possible to or how Eleanor thinks it would be possible to uh, preserve that in the future will it be possible um, given the challenges that it faces it survived this far but would it would it be possible realistically to keep it going would it be better to replace the sculptures the models with maybe fiberglass um, or fiberglass replacements, fiberglass versions that will better stand the weather or the, the elements and the vandalism and so on. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a good question um, and one that you know obviously really cuts to the very very core of how you approach conserving a site like this because you know, do you do you keep fighting the fight to save the original components or you just do you just go nope that's it they're 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 doomed let's just build replicas and we're done with it. Um, and I think the, I think that the the general value that you know you talk to um, the friends of Crystal Palace dinosaurs and you talk to the public about this, the value is seen as keeping the site complete. Um, but at the same time, you want to keep as much of that authentic original as you can. So it's kind of trying to keep that balance between the two. Um, and obviously, when things uh, when parts of the site fail to a point where you can no longer repair them um you know that's when you have to start putting in the uh the fiberglass antlers that's when you have to put in the the 3d printed jaws and that kind of thing to 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 get the you know to get get it looking complete again but the challenge is to try and keep it as as original as you can and uh obviously you know this is the this is the the real the real core issue with the crystal palace dinosaurs and one reason we wanted to write the book was to you know just keep this Keep this in, in the in the public eye, and, and you know, keep people thinking about this. Is that the the site is unique? Uh, there's nothing else like it on the planet. When it's gone, it's gone. And yet, at the moment, we're maybe not looking after it as well as we could do. Um, and that's not to say things aren't changing. So the site is now Grade One listed, which means that Historic England, which uh, for, for anyone who's not familiar with them, Historic England are a, a public funded body in the UK that uh, in England, I should say, that look after sites of historic exceptional historic importance and so they will they provide the expertise and the funding to to patch up places like crystal palace and then they will maintain it um you know obviously in, in for prosperity um but we, we, that hasn't started happening yet and we're we're at the point where these projects need to start happening sooner rather than later because the the site is literally crumbling away before our eyes you know in many respects if you go there um, my, my previous visits to Crystal Palace, I went there in 2018, um, and then we wrote this book in lockdown. So what should have been me running up and down to London to visit the site every you know every few weeks or every few months, uh, I actually managed to visit once in the whole time, just because we you know we we wrote most of it uh, through the pandemic. So 
obviously we couldn't travel very much. Um, but yeah, in the the three years between my visits, the site was just, you know, just so much more run down. It's just amazing how quick it happens. Um, and you know, even, even repair jobs that were done relatively recently, they just start to look, you know, disheveled, um, you know, within a, a space of a couple of years. And I guess there's a lot of this is because it's outside, so it is exposed to the elements. And unfortunately, we, there are problems with with people trespassing. I mean, everything is in theory secure. It's behind fences. It's the, the um, most of the, the the paleontological sculptures are on an island, which in theory has a moat around it. But um, you know, when we get a dry spell or the the moat itself has got a lot of sediment in it now, so it's nowhere near as as deep as it used to be. Um, so people will go onto the islands and they, by intent or by accident, things get broken. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, the, these, the, 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 the damage, the wear and tear is pretty continual. Um, and even, even things like, um, you know, even things like just plant growth is a major problem because these things are made of concrete. Obviously, if, they, if, a, if a little seed falls in a crack and the plant starts to grow, it just starts pushing that crack open and then that allows water in in the winter that water starts to freeze and it blasts the concrete open then you, ha you have problems with things like subsidence and you know all sorts of stuff it's um it, the long-term future of the site i think it's fair to currently classify it as uncertain that's that's the most optimistic i can be with it uh it's obviously good that historic england are now involved and and hopefully that will this will be a real you know this should hopefully be a real turning corner for the uh returning point i should say um for the longevity of the site but we'll we'll see how it goes okay um right on like a somewhat different subject uh <laughs> david or our uh, david or blogmaster um did wonder how because obviously you spent a great time as we've already said researching the influence well researching the models and researching the influences behind them and so on and so forth and how that might have fed into your own paleo art obviously a great deal of your own paleo art features in the book because you have all the modern reconstructions by you of the various species but um has researching this stuff fed into your own artwork has it influenced your own style at all would you say um yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a couple of obvious nods to Hawkinsian paintings in, uh, or to Hawkins paintings, I should say, not Hawkinsian. There's a couple of nods to Hawkins paintings in there, just for fun. Um, so the Temnodontosaurus has got the same background, uh, a very similar background, I should say, to a, a painting that Hawkins did in the 1870s of lower Jurassic marine reptiles. And uh, in a similar vein, the Megatherium painting has got animals posed in the same uh, sort of basic composition that he used in in another 1870 painting. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of little nods like that. I, I mean, I get I get uh, told a lot that my artwork looks quite vintage, which isn't intentional. It's just sort of how it's fallen out. Because I, I mean, it, I'm completely self-taught when it comes to painting and things. So it's all, you know, it's. Uh, I think that's why I've never really had a distinctive style because I've never really been trained. This is how you do things. It's just been lots of experimentation, and it's sort of paintings come out as they come out um i mean i, I think i think I, I do look at people like hawkins and uh i do have a lot of admiration for for what they do and i, I quite like their you know that that the, the old-fashioned look of you know artwork like by guys like hawkins by knight by burian i like that kind of aesthetic because it's not 
it's not trying to be 100% real. You know, it's sort of uh, it's allowing. I, I think um, Johan Egerkrans put this really well when he said he he, he he likes people to sort of finish the reconstruction themselves, and, uh, and I think that's a nice way of putting it. You know, I don't necessarily know that. Um, we need paleoart to be photo real all the time. And I think that's where the expectation is now is that everything is sort of photographic quality. Everything looks like it could be, you know, a, a scene from walking with dinosaurs, a prehistoric planet or something. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, I guess I kind of go the other way. I quite like just having things which look like paintings. And lots of people are surprised that I'm a digital artist. They think I'm doing, you know, watercolors or, or oils or something, but yeah, it's all just done in Photoshop. Uh, but I think the difference is I just, I let my brush strokes stay where they are. I don't worry about getting rid of them. And I don't, I don't zoom in and draw every single scale or anything like that. Um, I think of myself as quite a sloppy, lazy painter, to be honest. So that's, that's my other excuse. You know, when, when people say, oh, it looks painterly, it's like, great. That's, you can call it painterly if you want. It wasn't just I was getting bored of painting <laughs> all those plants or whatever. Well, funny enough, it ties in a lot with the Vintage Dinosaur Arts book that we're looking at for this particular episode. In that it is also, I mean, it's from originally 1959, I believe, and it's also very painterly and not necessarily realistic. And we did talk about how it was almost more acceptable back in the sort of pre-Renaissance days to make things more painterly and um, how this photoreal style came to dominate, I suppose, partly because people wanted to show that they were doing their homework and they were following the Renaissance, the dinosaur Renaissance style, and partly because then, of course, CGI came along and publishers wanted everything to look like CGI or to look photo real. So, you know, to tie in with walking with dinosaurs effectively. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Kind of tells me that, I mean, you said about not having a distinctive style, but I, I think you do. It's very hard to mistake a Mark Whitten piece for something else or, you know, or something else for a Mark Whitten piece. I can see one of your pieces pop up somewhere and sort of instantly recognize it. So yeah, I, I think you do have a distinctive style, but which is um, yeah, I think it's changed a lot over time. If you go go back through my painting career, it it's sort of been a an evolution of you know different. As I say, it's just because of a lot of experimentation and trying to figure out you know what works for a different painting. And and also, it just as I've got better myself, I didn't really start painting in earnest. I mean, I've always drawn pictures, um, you know, ever since I was small. I've always draw, enjoyed you know creating art of one kind or another. But it sort of felt that I, I really started trying to do this. Um, do this properly, if you like, maybe around 2014. And so from that time, there's been a lot of effort put into trying to trying to better myself and do do different and you know more interesting things. And also you know, things which are, are technically more impressive than things I would have done previously as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just going back to the, you know, to David's question, that is actually what I just said there about you know, things being technically superior. I'm, I'm aware that there is also a push in, in modern paleo art to sort of be quite distinct compositionally. And I'm thinking of some amazing artwork that gets done of, um, like Julius Satoni's amazing sort of 360 view of, I think it was a sauropod. I'm trying to remember, I don't think it was Brontosaurus, but I want to say Brontosaurus. But it's a it's a sauropod sort of stepping over. Yeah, it's like a this three sixty degree view, and I mean that's just amazing. Um, and I, I I would I would never even attempt to do something like that. But I think I think a lot of my compositions are quite classical. You know, they are quite basic. It's like very very animal focused. Um, you know, the the but the, not to a insane degree of detail. I'm happy to leave some bits a little bit. You know leave the uh leave the values quite faded so you focus on the bit i want you to focus on 
as opposed to just looking for those there there is lots of paleo art now where you can look under every single leaf and there's like a bug and there's a there's a still mammal scurrying about or something um whereas yeah I, i'm a bit more old-fashioned and it's like there's one thing i want you to look at and it's that thing in the middle and we're done mm. you do harken back to that more sort of classical realist style of the old school of burian and knight and so on rather than the more modern hyper detailed stuff which is good um and as we always say there should be room for all of these things there shouldn't be an extreme emphasis on one particular style at the expense of all others so you know it's very good that you have a distinctive style and i do think it's got richer over time as you said it's uh you progress rather a lot things have got more detailed um yeah i mean i remember you started out with uh Obviously, a highly influential image of yours was um, a giant Ashtarkid standing next to Georgia. <laughs> so, yep. and you've sort of gone from that to these highly detailed landscapes, um, you know, with animals as a mere component of a wider ecosystem and with that kind of classical composition to them, which is very really nice. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, it's not very kind of you to say. Stop uh, massaging your ego so much. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the other, the other no, question. No, no, from, keep uh, going, keep going. <laughs> I mean, the other question one of our um and sorry it's a complete shift of gears but well going back to crystal palace um sophie was wondering what your thoughts were and you do go into some detail in this about this in the book but on the unrealized new york uh sort of new york version of crystal palace that hawkins was working on with the hadrosaurs and i suppose what that could have been um do you know if there's any truth to this rumor that some of the models are buried under Central Park or bits of them. Yeah, an idea. I've just heard the same rumor that they're never <laughs> meant to be there, but, but no one, no one knows where. And yeah, not, not a clue. It would be, I mean, it's a little bit, we haven't actually touched on, on, um, you know, one, one aspect of, of our own, uh, Hawkins dinosaur park is that a lot of the models are missing and you just think, well, where did they end up? Like these things were physical objects at one point um they had to go somewhere like you can't just destroy a model and in the case of the ones in london we don't know if they were destroyed or if people took them away from the site and they're just sat in you know who knows where some some great estate somewhere that's got room to have you know giant paleotherium models knocking about um you say that but of course um it makes me think of the Black Gang Chine dinosaurs from the 1970s, which one could argue are just kitschy, but they destroyed an awful lot of those um, a few years back. They just end up on a big scrap heap and bits of them now are lurking around. Like um, this filmmaker who's got one of the heads in his, in his home. <laughs> but you know, but, but yeah. they, they just got scrapped, most of them. They just got completely destroyed. So yep. what, the same thing could well have happened here. They'd probably just lost forever. I mean, That's I, our assumption. Unfortunately, I think that's where you, where you go. So we, we know that... Um, and it, this is quite an unbelievable figure, you know, when we, when we actually calculated, okay, what do we know is missing? We realize that there's seven models that have gone, and there's 30 models there today. Uh, when you think, well, there was once 37, that's quite a lot more. Um, and we know there was a lot of disruption to the geological court in the, in the 1950s and sort of the mid 20th century. Um, a lot of the mammals were moved around and we think some of them were destroyed in process or, they were moved and, and maybe damaged in the move. And then just, as you say, you're probably thrown on a scrap heap somewhere, but it's, it's amazing how callous the attitude was for a while. Um, so there were, there were bits of the bits of the court that were just destroyed 
because they they the, the the park owners at the time uh that you know the, the the powers that be decided that they wanted to change the you know the layout around the park and that kind of thing so they're just like oh well just bulldoze through that you know that that unique you know vintage um you know, the, 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 just bulldoze through the, the the first attempt to democratize paleontological science to to the masses. Uh, that's not important. We need to put our whatever here instead. So it's um, it, it's a it's a shame, and that's that's definitely one one good thing about the site now being Grade One listed is that that, that will never happen again. That that that's kind of like just wanton, um, you know, completely irrational destruction of things will will never be allowed. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's crazy to think that people could look at these things of you know, even in even in the 1950s, these things were 100 years old, and how could people not think we should look after these? You know, if you're going to move them, at least put them somewhere safe. It does all feel a bit lost walking around there now. It's really hard to imagine what was at one point. The the fact that there were these huge landscape gardens, fountains, statues everywhere, even without the palace, just the rest of it, it's all been completely transformed now yeah it feels very far away doesn't it <laughs> yeah we're just the we're, well we're just well as i said the, uh, the geological court obviously and then a few sort of sphinxes and steps staircases as a reminder of what was once there but yes it's an awful lot has been lost already so it would be a shame to lose even more just through neglect as you say and, and, and it's another reason to preserve the geological court because it is the the only Rural component of that whole project that has has survived to the modern day. I mean, I mean, it's 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 really because it was the, the the layout of the Crystal Palace itself was you know again had a great deal of thought put into it, and sort of the palace was at the top of the park. And the reason the geological court was kind of tucked in the corner is because it was you know it kind of suited it to be far away from the grandeur of the height of Victorian culture represented by the palace itself. Um, and plus, I suppose it also gave people a reason to go wandering through the gardens to go and see the the sculptures in the geology at the end. Uh, and it was really only the the geography that saved the sculptures from the same fate that befell the rest of the rest of the palace. Um, and I suppose it's it's so things like the fountains. You know, once the once the palace went and the there was no longer any reason to be had these great big bodies of water in the park obviously they just get developed into something else but the, the geological core isn't really it's not really in anyone's way you know it's, it's small enough that it's sort of you know you can work around it when you're building your stadiums and your other other things that are now in the park um and, and plus you know it's, it's got a certain kind of tourist value it's got a sort of certain you know landmark quality to it you know you can go, we talk about the crystal palace dinosaurs and lots of people know what they are just because it's you know, not not everywhere has these, you know, vintage life-size dinosaurs from the 1850s to, to go and see. So it's, um, I guess that's that's kind of what's kept it going to today. But we we just need to, as I say, we we just need to have that that conversation about how serious are we about keeping them long term because otherwise they're they're, they're not going to last much longer. And I don't I don't want to suggest they're going to fall apart tomorrow. But it's the kind of thing that okay maybe we're un- unless there's serious changes in how we look after them we're probably one of the last generations that will see them at something approximating what they were once like and then after that you know they'll just steadily decline um and and just get worse and worse until probably the whole lot will just be be bulldozed because they'll be in such a state and that will be sad when that happens that will really will be the the end of 
not just the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, but that will be the last, you know, kind of vestige of, of what that, that Crystal Palace experiment was. Wow. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that happy, um, cheery note. On that happy, cheery, still, that's um, it's quite a conclusion. It gives us something to, um, to chew over, I think. The book is out later in May. Are we looking at sort of 20-something that's going to be available? Yeah, so it's so because of you know because of the crisis or the crises of of yeah. everything at the minute, it's been perma really crisis. hard to say exactly when it's going to come out. The perma crisis, as it as it's known, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, we're looking at mid May at the minute is the, is the bottom line. So uh, hopefully it'll be out very soon. You can already pre order it. So if you go to you know all your favourite online book retailers, um, they they can already take your pre orders. So and it costs it costs thirty pounds. And of course, as as we've already said. Um, you know, a, a portion of of that thirty pounds goes towards conservation of the of the sculptures themselves. It goes to the Friends of Crystal Palace dinosaurs, and they can use that for their um, obviously running their own own charity costs, their own outreach events, and that money also goes towards actually repairing the sculptures themselves. So things like the um the Megalosaurus jaw when that fell off recently, um, several thousand pounds of that came from of repairing that came from. The Friends of Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. So it's a good charity to, to donate to. Donate to. If you don't want to buy the book, um, but you just want to donate directly, then you can do that as well. If you just go to their website, which is um, cpddinosaurs.org, I think, just go to that website and you can donate directly. Although the book is well worth buying for anyone interested in, well, obviously Crystal Palace and Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, but also vintage paleo art and just the science behind paleo art generally, the history of it. It's um, definitely a worthy purchase, I think. Yes. Thanks very much, Mark, for speaking with me. And yeah, I think I'll, um, <laughs> I think, I think I'll end things there, but yeah, th- th- thanks for, um, th- th- thanks for showing up and being a willing participants. Well, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun to talk about this. So uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having us and helping us, you know, put the word out. Have you actually listened to any of that, Neil? By the way, because we're we're both worried about it being quite confusing because we're both named Mark and we both have similar voices and speak in a similar way. The the way I'm going to deal with that if it comes up, I haven't listened to it yet because yeah, you've been, you've been very busy. But um, the way I'm going to deal with that is I'm just going to um, I'm just going to increase your pitch. So all <laughs> oh, right, okay, thanks. <laughs> You're going to sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> I can't really sound like Darth Vader uh. instead. Like James Earl Jones. Uh, that's what I'm going to do to the other man. I'm sure it'll be fine. No, I think it'll be fine. Anyway, I suppose now we've got to do the uh, the end then. Oh, yeah. The, the, our closing. The, the, the closing bit. Yeah. The the one that either starts in medias res or um, we, we say something along the lines of... Uh, <clears throat> thanks again to Mark Witten for that uh, brilliant interview. Yes, thank you. Mark. Now, were we going to talk about a certain new documentary... That seems apparently to have taken the paleosphere completely by storm. Yeah, it's yes. later this month. Are we going to miss it? Um, we, I mean, obviously, our next episode will come out afterwards. I suppose we can, if one of, at least one of us gets a Apple TV trial, I assume we can just get a trial. Yes, <laughs> I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> we can actually watch it. Actually, I need to look into that, hmm. whether I can just get a trial. I think getting a trial won't be the problem. Oh. I think the problem is going to be uh, getting rid of it. Right, we need oh, yes, to cancel that course. subscription too when the series ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's going to be the thing. So, but seriously though, cynicism aside, uh, 
what I've seen of it, and of course we're talking about prehistoric park. No, prehistoric kingdom. No, uh, prehistoric <laughs> planets. That's the one. That's the one. Goodness, it looks good. It's it looks beautiful. And, and as yep. you said, Niels, <laughs> I I mentioned earlier that um, it just the trailer alone was the sort of thing to dispel your cynicism altogether. Um, it really does look. Beautiful. I was really actively looking for signs that it was going to disappoint me. And I haven't found any yet. Mm. Yes, exactly. We you know they basically hired all the best, all the best people, right down well, to the it. effects people, the scientific advisors that they actually listen to, and Indeed. of course, Sir David himself to narrate. <laughs> but they hired the very best. Apparently, everyone writers, artists throughout the world, including Darren Nash. Which is why it looks like it contains ideas from all yesterdays. But yeah, seriously. It um, does. Can't wait to see it. And I suppose we'll have some coverage of it either on the blog or on the podcast. We'll see. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And with that, I say thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you for still listening, even after all this time. Yes, yeah, thank you. Must be doing something right. Must be doing something right. Must be doing something right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Haasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon.